Father, we confess today that you are the one who has the words of eternal life. And so we are coming to you for where else can we go? Where else can we go? Where else can we turn? There is no king like you and there is no shepherd like you. The king who rules over all and who controls all of our circumstances and the shepherd who loves us and who cares for us, who leads us and guides us like no one else can. So Holy Spirit, we are praying that today, today, as we hear the voice of God through the word, that you would bend our wills and our hearts to receive it, not just to hear it and let it go in one ear and out the other, but to receive it, to believe it, to obey it, and to rejoice in it. This is why you've given it. It's why you've unveiled yourself to us in your words so that we would delight in you and follow you. So work that in us, Holy Spirit, today. And we pray for brothers and sisters downtown at Second Presbyterian at the conference that was mentioned earlier as Kevin DeYoung preaches this morning and then as Trent preaches tonight. Would you do the same for them? Would you show them Christ in the word and may their hearts receive him and believe in him and obey him? So we're asking for you to do things that I cannot do, we cannot do, no man can do, no person can do. Holy Spirit, come and do your work. Blow through this place. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've tried for a long time, but I think I can't win. I'd do it all better if I could do it again. Wherever I'm going, it's the same place I've been. Ain't it a cold, cold world? I might have to leave you, I think's what she said. Wish I could sleep instead of tossing in bed. And I find myself thinking, I'd be better off dead. Ain't it a cold, cold world? So go the lines of a song I heard recently on National Public Radio. Singing wields a unique power. It's a way to express thoughts and emotions from our hearts, but it also drives deeper thoughts and emotions that are already there. It reinforces and it sets in concrete thoughts and emotions that we have, whether positive or negative. So what we sing and what we hear sung impacts us probably more than we can recognize or measure. And the Bible says a good bit about Singing, it's a big deal. So we get to look at what the scriptures say about singing in these next couple of weeks. And I invite you to turn to Psalm 95 for today. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in the rack in front of you, it's page 499. Psalm 95. 
and we'll see some things that God says about singing. Psalm 95, this is God's word to us. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's a psalm of contrasts. Just reading through it, there's all sorts of different tones and ideas. We'll look at three sections from Psalm 95 today. Come on, let's sing. Come in, let's kneel. And listen and beware. And I would summarize the big idea of the psalm in this way. Sing to and submit to the shepherd king in order to fight grumbling and unbelief. Sing to and fight and and submit to the shepherd king in order to fight grumbling and unbelief. You might have noticed at the beginning of the psalm, there's no background information given. Some of the psalms give you a title or some sort of explanation of David or when David was in the cave, when he fled from Saul or things of that nature. But there's no background information given at the beginning of this psalm. However, as you read through, there are little hints that tell us something about when it might have been used and by whom. So some commentators, some writers think that this might have been used during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a feast that the nation of Israel used to remember God's delivering them out of Egypt and then their wanderings through the wilderness. And that fits really well with different points that we see through the psalm. And I think you'll see it as we go through today. There are hints of things that God has done along the way. Things like the plagues in Egypt, dividing the Red Sea, the rock that was struck so that water would come out, the complaining people, and the 40 years wandering through the desert. So there's a lot of Israel's history packed into the psalm, and that gives us some idea of what we need to learn and take from it. 
First section, verses one through five. Come on, let's sing. First, you see an invitation to sing. And it's pretty evident from the first couple of verses. Oh, come, join us. Come together. And the picture that came to my mind was of a, of a crowd thronging toward a stadium for a big ball game. Seven or eight years ago, uh, my two brothers and three cousins and I, six of us, got to go to an Ohio State Buckeyes game up in Ohio in the horseshoe. And uh, they were playing Michigan. So it was the greatest of rivalries in sports. Some would debate that. So it was amazing to me as you're, as you're walking toward the stadium just to see the, these floods of people, thousands of people moving in one direction with one purpose. And that seems to be the idea that the psalmist is conveying here, that there's this processional that's heading toward God's temple, heading toward the place where God's people are going to worship him. And so as they're flowing that way, people are saying, come on, join us. There's an invitation. And there's this growing din this cacophony of sound, these joyful shouts and these songs that are kind of erupting from the crowd as they're all marching together toward this one location. So an invitation to join in, to sing. But how? How are we supposed to sing? There's a few words used here in these first couple of verses. First of all, verse one, O come, let us sing. That, that word that's translated sing there, though, has more of an idea of to cry out, to shout. One writer says, it's a loud and implicitly heartfelt noise. So it's not even overtly about what we typically think of singing with a lilting melody and words that are put to it. It's more of an eruption of joy. Yes! And the second phrase goes along with that in the second half of verse one. Let us make a joyful noise to cheer, to shout in triumph. We just scored a touchdown and there's this roar that goes up. And then third, how do we sing? Verse two, let us come into his presence. And here's the idea of drawing near to God, coming before his face. God welcomes all those who come to him to praise his name. And the question is, will you join? Will you join the throng to sing to this God? Well, who is this God? How do we sing? But then to whom are we singing? Verse one, O come, let us sing to the Lord, Yahweh, the I am, the covenant God who keeps his promises to people in Moses' day and people in the psalmist day for Psalm 95, and he keeps his promises to our current day. He's the I am who's always the same and who never changes. Who else is he? The end of verse one. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. What does a rock give you the idea of? Security, a foundation, a defense. One who brings deliverance the rock of our salvation, the one who rescues. And this could be one of those hints that talks about 
Israel's past. For what was the rock of salvation in the desert? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, and this will give us a little bit of background to fill out this psalm. Exodus 17, and when we leave this passage in just a minute, put a marker here because we're going to pop back to it a little bit later. Exodus 17, so that's back toward the beginning of your Bible, the second book toward the very beginning. Exodus 17, we'll look at verse 1 and following. The Bible tells us all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So what did they do? Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink, which is a legitimate request in the desert. (laughs) You're going to die if you don't have water. But the problem is deeper We'll see in that in just a moment. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, watch this, I, God, will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So keep a marker there. We're coming back. But did you catch what's happening? People are quarreling with Moses. We need water. Yes, they do. But there's a deeper root issue behind that complaint. They're grumbling against God because he hasn't provided water. And so what is God's solution? Instead of striking the Israelites for their sin of grumbling and unbelief that God was not good, that he's not providing for them, that he's not in control of the circumstances, what does God do? He goes before Moses stands upon the rock and tells Moses, strike the rock, essentially striking God. And what is the result? When God is struck, water gushes out to give life to the people. 1 Corinthians 10 makes this even clearer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, for I do not want you to be unaware Brothers, that our fathers, those Israelites back there, they were all under the cloud. Remember, the Israelites followed a pillar of cloud coming out of Egypt. They were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Remember the Red Sea? Walls on both sides, they passed through it. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. Listen to this. 
They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Christ is the rock of our salvation, the one who was struck in our place, upon whom the wrath of God, which should have come upon us, fell upon him instead. The wrath of God falls upon him. And what is the result? Eternal life. Life-giving water flows to those who believe in him. He is Yahweh, the I am, and the rock of our salvation to whom we are called to sing. So to whom do we sing? We sing to the I am, to the rock of our salvation, to the one who has delivered us and who was struck in our place. But what do we sing? Back to Psalm 95. A couple of terms. Verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And this carries the idea of a sacrifice. I'm offering up a sacrifice of thanks, of praise to God for what he has done for me. And then at the end of verse 2, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, music. So now the psalmist is saying, add the order and the beauty of written song and instrumental music, add that to the already joyful chaos and shouting in the crowd and combine them to offer praise to the I am who is our rock of salvation. And as if we didn't have enough reason to sing, the psalmist gives us more reasons to sing. The why. The why we sing in verses three through five. So verse three, the sea, sorry, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. God dwarfs his rivals. No one can stand next to him or supersede him. All are under his feet. He's the great God, the magnificent, the powerful, the weighty, the glorious, the beautiful, the famous one. And he's the great king above all gods. So all those other supposed deities, all those other things that seem to be powerful, he's the king above them all. As Dan Coover mentioned recently, God has no predators. He's at the top of the food chain. No one is above him. And God not only dwarfs his rivals, but he also controls all creation. In the psalmist's day, there was this idea that gods were regional. So you've got the God of the hills. And when you're up in the hills, you've got to make sure you make him happy. And then you've got the God of the seas. And when you go out on your ship, you've got to make sure you make him happy, etc., etc., whatever region you're in. But here, the psalmist makes really clear that God is the king from height to depth and from far to near. Verse four, in his hand are the depths of the earth, the darkest caves that no person has ever explored and the fiery center of the earth. It's in God's hand. He knows about it. He sees it. He controls it. 
In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. So the unclimbable reaches of the crags where the mountain goats skip and play and the eagles soar. He's the king from the lowest to the highest. Then verse 5. The sea is his, for he made it. The unfathomable expanse of the ocean. You start flying and you fly and you fly and you fly and the sun comes up and you're still flying over water. And all that God made, it is his. And here's another hint possibly to Israel's history. The sea, the Red Sea, that he parts, God says, that Red Sea is mine. I control it. And you don't know where you're going, Israel? Walk through. The sea is mine. I made it. And the end of verse 5, and his hands formed the dry land, the sandy beaches, the rolling hills, the humid jungles, the icy poles, the massive continents and the tiny islands. He formed them all. He brought them out of the water and he shaped them in the water. And I love these phrases, in his hand and his hand formed. What does in his hand communicate to you? If mountains and depths are in his hand, how massive must he be? God is spirit. So this is, this is an idea. It's a human projection upon God that he has a hand as we have hands, but it communicates that he is massive and it communicates that he is in control. He can do what he wants with the heights and with the depths. And then his hands form the dry land. It speaks of his power. Think of God shaping Australia. That's power. And think of his imminence, his nearness. He comes near to shape and to form the dry land. And it also speaks of his ownership. I made that. It's mine. So as a potter would take a lump of clay and throw it on a wheel, or as most of the rest of us would take some Play-Doh when we're a kid, and we knead it, and we poke it, and we shape it, God does that with continents and with the planet. He shapes things with his hand. So what does that communicate to us? He's in control of everything. And so what is the psalmist telling us? Sing to the king who controls everything. Now, why does there have to be an invitation to sing? Why do there have to be reasons given to sing to a God like this? Because we forget who he is. And then when we forget, we struggle to believe who he says he is. So while we who are God's followers would claim that God is indeed over all other gods, our worry and our anxiety really tell the true story. They expose that we think otherwise. So what area do you believe 
is out of God's control. That might be hard to identify. So here's a different question. In what areas do you complain? And where do you grumble? Because as we saw in Exodus 17, the Israelites were complaining and grumbling about water. But the issue went deeper. They didn't believe God was in control. They didn't believe God could do anything to help them. So perhaps for you, it's finances. Money just seems to be out of God's control because you never seem to have enough to take care of your needs. Maybe it's injustice. The systems or the people that oppress you seem stronger than God. You're the little guy who always gets chewed up and spat out. And it seems like God can't do anything about it or doesn't do anything about it. Maybe it's a person, a boss or a family member or someone here at church, in our church family, who treats you in an inexcusable way and it seems like God isn't doing anything about it. Or maybe it's your own sin that just has a lock on you and you've prayed that God would give you freedom from it and you've tried to stop, but every time you try to stop it, you just keep falling again and again. And it seems like God must not be in control because he hasn't helped me out yet. But the psalmist is at pains to remind us that our God is the king who controls everything. And so we should shout and sing to him in order to fight grumbling and unbelief. But you head into the second section of the psalm and the scene shifts a little bit. It shifts from this loud procession flowing toward the place of worship And if the first section was like a crowd heading to a game, the second section is kind of like a tour group that walks into a cathedral. The chaotic shout turns into a quiet hush. Verse six. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Once again, there's an invitation But this time it's an invitation to worship. And how? How are we to worship? Come, he says, but this come is different than the first come. The first come was, join in, come on. This one is, enter, come in to a place, enter into it. And what are the three terms after? Let us worship. And the idea is to go prostrate on the ground before a deity. And what's the second term? To bow down. And this has the idea, if you've ever seen Muslims at the hour of prayer, what's their position? On the knees with head on the ground. All the way down. And the third term is kneel. Bend your knee to a king. 
And all three terms, it's like the psalmist piles them one on top of the other to communicate, you need to get as low as you can because this person that you've just come before is worthy of prostrate worship. Commentator Golden Gay says this, we are bodies, not merely spirits. And what we do with our bodies expresses our real selves. Charles Spurgeon adds this, posture is not everything, yet is it something. Prayer is heard when knees cannot bend. So you shouldn't feel guilty if your knees cannot bend. But it is seemly or appropriate that an adoring heart should show its awe by prostrating the body and bending the knee. Do you ever kneel in prayer or in personal worship to God? Do you ever go face down before him? You might think, Abe, that that feels a bit dramatic, a bit over the top. Uh, Could be potentially awkward or embarrassing. But why? What What if your child sees you kneeling at the couch? What if your roommate sees you kneeling by your bed? What if somebody opens the door to a a room and sees you on your face? What does that communicate? There's a God who's great and worthy of worship. A God that we should go down before because he's so massive and so powerful and so beautiful. But as we will see, so gracious. Here's something else to provoke our thinking a little bit. There's rarely a time in our gathered worship where we kneel. I remember several years ago when it was not so common for hands to be raised in our setting. And I remember feeling a bit awkward and on display being close to the front and putting the hand up I felt like, uh, everybody's watching. But God has created me as a very expressive being, as you all know well. (laughs) So not everyone is like me. May that salve your consciences if you are not. My wife would be the first to say she is not like me. But now in our collective setting, we've grown more accustomed to hands being raised in praise to God. Perhaps a person kneeling now or then in our gathered worship could be the next gesture that could initially feel awkward or a bit exposed. But this psalm is written to God's gathered people and it invites them to come before his presence And to kneel, to bow down before him. How we worship, but to whom 
To whom are we wor- whom are we worshiping? Verse 6 says, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The first section was all about God as the creator and the king who is in control. But now it says our maker. And it doesn't seem that the emphasis is so much on the fact that God's created a human race. God has made us. But it seems like the emphasis is more specific. It's more on God has created a chosen people. He has made his own special people whom he has called out for himself. And that's emphasized in the next verse, verse seven. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Here are the reasons to worship. We had an invitation to worship and now here are reasons to worship. God is in relationship with us, the God who formed continents with his hands, has called people to be his. He has drawn us into a relationship with him so that we can truly say the maker of heaven and earth, the keeper of the seas, the owner of the world is our God, our champion, our ruler, And we're bowing low before the one who chose us to be his people before the foundation of the world, who made covenant promises to Abraham, which he has kept to this moment in history, who has loved his people so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross in our place, who has sent his spirit now to live in our hearts as the assurance of our eternal hope in heaven. And he is the one who is making all things new so that we will be with him forever. This is our God, and we are his people. But what's the specific image that the psalmist uses in verse 7? It's sheep and shepherd. God not only is in relationship with us, but he cares for us. We are the people of his pasture. That means he has a pasture set out, which is his, and he knows it's good. He knows it's good for us as his sheep. And he takes us into it and says, here is your pasture. It is mine for you. And it is good. A shepherd doesn't lead his sheep to bad pasture. He takes them to places that are good for them. We are the people of his pasture. And the sheep of his hand. There's the image again. We are the sheep of his hand. He cares for us and he owns and controls us. He guides and guards his sheep. He takes care of them and meets their needs, but he also guards them from the enemies which would attack them. He's in control, not merely of the cosmos, but he's in control of his people. So it is an awe-inspiring and humbling reality that the mountain-shaping God is the caring shepherd of his people. So what does the psalmist say to us here? Kneel to the shepherd who cares for you. Submit to the one who loves you. And again I ask, why must there be an invitation 
to kneel to a God so gracious as this? And again, the answer is because we forget and because we're so prone to unbelief. We don't truly believe that he's good and that he cares for us. Jump back to Exodus chapter 17, and I want you to see something that maybe we missed on the first pass through. Exodus 17, the people are walking through the wilderness. They get to a place, there's no water. They complain against Moses. They grumble against God. God says, here's the solution. Moses, I'm going before. I will be on the rock. Strike the rock. Water comes out, gives life to the people. And what does it say in verse seven? And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And that's the question that the human heart has asked since the beginning. Adam and Eve stood before the tree and the serpent tempted them to think, God's not good. God doesn't want what's best for you. He's kept that from you. So Adam and Eve are tempted to think, Is God among us or not? Does he really care for us or not? You fast forward thousands of years to the people of Israel. They're in the desert, no water, and they cry out, is God among us or not? You fast forward to Psalm 95, the day of the psalmist, and he's telling his people, beware, they asked, is God among us or not? And we come to today, and that's the question that we are tempted to ask Is God among us or not? Is he for me or not? So while we, who are God's followers, would say, God's my shepherd. He takes care of me. Where do we doubt and disbelieve that he is good and that he cares for us? And again, that's going to be shown by complaining, grumbling, So in what situation or circumstance right now do you feel as though God has forgotten you? Where do you feel as though you are trapped and God doesn't care? In what relationship do you find yourself where it seems that God has abandoned you? Or maybe you don't have a relationship that you desire and it seems like God doesn't care. It's so easy for us to forget that we have a good shepherd who loves us and cares for us. And so the psalmist and God himself are saying, there is a shepherd who cares for us. And so we should kneel to him and worship him in order to fight grumbling and unbelief. And now we shift once more to the final scene. So the chaotic shout of the processional has changed into the hushed and humbled worship of the second section. And now that humility of kneeling prepares us to hear God's voice. Verses 7 through 11. 
the end of verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So listen and beware. Listen. God is speaking. That phrase from the end of of verse 7, if you hear his voice, it indicates that there may be some who cannot hear God's voice. There are some in the far reaches of our world who have no access to the voice of God. There is no copy of God's word. There is no one who speaks God's word to them. They cannot hear his voice. But there are those even near to us or maybe among us who choose not to hear God's voice. And there seems to be this indication here that to be under the voice of God, to hear the word of God, is an immense privilege that we cannot take for granted. For faith, believing in him, comes through hearing, and hearing comes through the word of God. So if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And here is where the tone changes in this psalm. It's almost as if God has done a divine bait and switch. He's gotten us excited about getting into the throng and singing praise to him and even bowing down and worshiping him. And all of a sudden, there's this warning. Beware. Do not harden your hearts. Why? And here's where God steps in as the speaker The whole psalm to this point has been the psalmist speaking. It's we and us. And now the voice changes and it is you and me. God is speaking to the people who are bowed before him in worship. And he says, do not harden your hearts as when, as at Meribah and as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, those places that are associated with the grumbling and the quarreling and the complaining of God's people, do not harden your hearts. What were the people of Israel doing when they had no water? They were doing what Pharaoh had done in Egypt. Pharaoh in Egypt saw the mighty works of God, the plagues, and he hardened his heart and said, I don't know Yahweh. And I won't let Israel go. And the Israelites, not many months later, are in the wilderness. And they're saying, we've seen the works of God. And we don't believe that he really cares about us. They're hardening their hearts just like Pharaoh did. And the warning comes to us today. Don't harden your hearts as they did What does God say in verse 9? When your fathers, they did this, they hardened their hearts. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. What were the Israelites doing? They were putting God on trial. One author says to put Yahweh to the test is to withhold trust. To withhold trust until he provides fresh proof instead of believing on the basis of what he's already done. As though to say, can he do it again? We'll believe him if he does. This sounds like the crowds in Jesus' day when they said to Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
They're saying, prove it to us. Come on, come on, come on, prove, prove it. Do what we want you to do, and then maybe we'll believe. Though they had seen my work, God says, Verse nine, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, the Israelites are saying to God, prove to us that you really love us and that you're really in control of of our situation. And God says, what more proof do you want? I poured out my plagues on Egypt. And in the midst of that, I protected you as my people from those plagues. And then with a mighty hand, I brought you out of Egypt. And if that wasn't enough, I parted the Red Sea so you could walk through. And if that wasn't enough, when your enemies tried to follow, I drowned them in the Red Sea. What more proof do you want? And yet this is the tendency of our human hearts. Give me more proof. I'm not going to believe until you prove yourself again. Ultimately, the Israelites did not need more proof. They needed to kneel to their shepherd king who was in control and who cared for them. And what was the result of their hardness of heart? God says, verse 10, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Because of their hardness of heart and unbelief, they went astray from God. They did not walk in obedience to him in his ways. And so because of that, for 40 years, God said, you're going to wander in the wilderness and I loathe you. Wait, wait, God loathed the people of Israel? Can God do that? (laughs) Is God allowed to do that? I thought God was a God of love. Think of this. We are disgusted by, and that's a good word for loathe in this passage, disgusted. We are disgusted by certain sins which we consider to be very heinous or vile. Most people in our world today would still consider the enslavement of and abuse of children to be disgusting and wicked. Most people would consider the trafficking of helpless and innocent little ones to be abhorrent and monstrous. So if we consider things to be loathsome and disgusting, how much more does the infinite God loathe and disgust unbelief that refuses him until he proves himself again? And what is the final result of their unbelief? Verse 11. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. On oath, God declares that these unbelieving people will not enter the land of rest, the land of promise, the land of Canaan. For 40 years they will wander in the wilderness until their carcasses fall. That is a horrible fate. And yet this passage is using that situation as a word to us. Today, 
Turn with me to Hebrews 3, where we finish. Hebrews chapter 3. The writer of Hebrews quotes this very passage. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Then hear this. Take care, brothers, you who are seated here today under the sound of God's voice. Take care, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But what do we do instead? Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit who is with us today and who speaks through his very word today, the Holy Spirit says to us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts because what could happen? The very thing that happened to the Israelites, they could not enter the land of rest. And for us today, we may not enter the land of rest if we continue in unbelief. So the psalmist is telling us, guard your heart from damning unbelief. You who profess to know Christ, you who call yourselves Christians, wandering, going astray, begins in the heart where no one but God can see it. So God is speaking to us now, just as he was to them. And he's saying, do not harden your hearts as you hear God's voice today. Continue to believe that he is good. Continue to believe that he is in control of your circumstances. And if you need proof that God is in control and that he is good, look to the cross. Look to the cross of Christ where he provided a way of deliverance and salvation for you through the rock who is Christ. Look to Jesus who was struck in your place. Look to him who bore the weight of God, the wrath of God, instead of that wrath falling upon you. Look to him who poured out the water of life upon you instead. Don't harden your hearts. Don't believe the lie that God can't do anything about my circumstances or that he doesn't care about me anymore. Don't believe it. Believe that he is for you and that he is king over all. And how do we guard against this damning unbelief? Well, in verse 13 of Hebrews 3 there, it says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort, stir up, challenge, encourage each other every day. And what's a way to encourage and exhort each other? 
when we gather. Sing. As we sing truths about God, we remember that he is in control and that he is good to us. And those truths are driven further into our hearts. And as we sing, our words encourage others around us. And the truths about God are driven further into their hearts as we sing to one another in gathered worship. So yes, sing at home. Sing in your car. Sing with your families and dads lead out in that way. But this psalm is talking about God's gathered people singing to him and kneeling before him so that their hearts would be guarded from grumbling and unbelief. So come on, let's sing. Look to the king and sing to him, the one who controls everything. Come in, let's kneel. Kneel to the shepherd who cares for you. And then listen and beware. Guard your heart from damning unbelief. There is a God who is in control and he loves you. So we sing and we submit to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that this is who you are. You are our rock and our redeemer. You are the king and you are our shepherd. So give us hearts to respond to your word, to your voice that we have heard today and help us to respond in belief, rehearsing again that you are good and that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.